Good morning, Christ Chapel. It's a privilege to be with you today. We welcome those of you who are streaming with us uh, uh, with live stream. We'd love to have you here as well as you, you make it, and you will find a great group of people here who love to worship God, study his word, and uh, have fellowship one with another. I welcome you to a series that uh, we started a couple weeks ago leading up towards Easter with seven words or seven expressions that Jesus spoke from the cross. Uh, the first uh, Sunday, uh, Pastor Cody uh, led us in uh, that session where uh, Jesus was asking the Father to forgive the people because they didn't know really what they were doing. Uh, that didn't mean all of them were saved, it just meant that he was releasing his, himself from that responsibility of judging and leaving that to the Father, and it was his way of uh, letting them know they had a need for forgiveness. At the same time, it's not a revenge issue for him. And the word was uh, forgiveness. Uh, last Sunday, Dr. Jonathan Murphy spoke on that, uh, that theme of, uh, uh, with the thieves on either side of Jesus on the cross. And so that, that whole aspect of what, what it was like to, uh, to know that salvation was theirs. Uh, today, we come to the third, and that's the word relationship the word relationship. If you didn't bring a copy of uh, the text with you, there's a blue Bible in the pew underneath your seat, and we're on page 905 and 6. Uh, we'll get there, uh, not right at the beginning, so just put a, a finger or a, a slip of paper there, and we'll come back to that. I was watching a TED Talk uh, by Robert uh, Waldinger, and he is a fourth-generation uh, leader of a study that was begun back in the 1930s. But that uh, study is an important study, as we're going to see, because in, in a recent survey of millennials, they were asking them, what was the most important goal that they had in their life? Over 80% of them said that their goal was to get rich. Their goal was to get rich. And out of that same group, another 50% of them said they wanted to be famous. Uh, some reason, the words rich and famous come to mind. But the reason why that is a startling statistic to a modern set of questioners, the Harvard study of adult development about which I wrote you in the pastor's desk uh, letter this week has been the longest longitudinal study of adult life that there's ever been done. For over 75 years, they've tracked the lives of 724 men year after year, asking about their work, their home lives, their health, and of course, asking how their life stories would turn out. Since 1938, <clears throat> they tracked the lives of two different groups within that corpus of men. The first group started in a study when they were sophomores at Harvard College. They all finished college during World War II, and then most went off to serve in the war. The second group was a group of boys from Boston's poorest neighborhoods. Boys who were chosen for the study specifically because they were from some of the most troubled and disadvantaged families in the Boston of the 1930s. Most lived in tenements or row houses, many living without even the basic convenience of hot and cold running water. So the question is, what did they learn from this study? And what are the lessons that come out of tens of thousands of pages of information that Waldinger and others have generated on these lives. <coughs> Excuse me, those, those lessons aren't about wealth. They're, they're not about fame. The clearest message that came out of that 75-year study is this. Good relationships make people both happier and 
healthier, period. Think about that. Good relationships make people happier and healthy over the course of their lives. That by itself should tell us the value of coming together as a church, our children's involvement in children's and student ministries, our kids' camp, our music camp, our mission trips, or just doing life with our home groups. Relationships matter. But as all we know, we all know, from our own lives and from others, relationships can get complicated and even messy. In fact, in their recent book, Relationships, A Mess Worth Making, Tim Lane and Paul Tripp, one of my friends, explore the stubborn problems that plague many close relationships. They offer these eight observations, we'll not list them for you, just listen to them, to help readers understand how relationships are used by God in our lives. Number one, we were made for relationships. Number two, in some way, all relationships are difficult. Third, each of us is tempted to make relationships the end rather than the means. Four, there are no secrets that guarantee problem-free relationships. Number five, at some point, you're gonna wonder whether relationships are worth it. Number six, God keeps us in messy relationships for his redemptive purpose. Number seven, the fact that our relationships work as well as they do is a sure sign of grace. And number eight, and this is their point, Scripture offers a clear and attractive hope for our relationships. As I prepared and prayed about this message, I had a thought I've never thought before. The relationships in the life of Jesus, think about this, the relationships in the life of Jesus were messy. If you would take out or turn to your sermon notes, you'll see our first point, and that is that Jesus knew what it was like to wrestle with the complexities of earthly relationships. When you look at the relevant passages across the pages of the four Gospels, we discover that Jesus, you may never have thought about this, he was the oldest child in a family of at least seven children. Four of Jesus' half-brothers are named, James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas, not Judas Iscariot, but another Judas. Joseph and Mary also became parents to girls. We don't know how many. The Bible just said he had sisters, plural. So he had half-brothers and half-sisters, at least six other siblings, younger brothers and sisters. Now just by itself, seven kids in a family, that could get messy. But I had this crazy thought. I've thought this once or twice before. What would it have been like to be the sibling of Jesus? He's perfect. It was never his fault. You could never tattle on him and get away with it. You'd go to Mary or Joseph and say, do you know what, you, you know, what but what did you do? You know, I'm, I'm sure it was very convicting, which may have been the reason that his brothers and sisters struggled to come to faith. But God wanted him in those kind of relationships. On a more serious note, God evidently wanted Jesus to experience many of the messy relationships that you and I experience. Uh, look at that passage in Hebrews 2.17 with me, and don't miss the phrase, he had to be made. He had to be made. Therefore, he, Jesus, had to be made like his brothers in every respect. Why? 
so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Notice the need. God thought it important for him to experience the messy part of relationships. He had to be made. Second, notice the humanity, like his brothers. This speaks of his incarnation. He, God, the, the Son, the second person of the Trinity, who existed from all eternity, became flesh and was born at Bethlehem. His humanity. And notice the extent in that verse. In every respect. The Bible says elsewhere in Hebrews, he was tempted at all points as we are, yet without sin. Why? So that he could be a sympathetic high priest knowing that we go through those temptations, we go through those trials. He had to be made like his brothers in every way, purpose statement, so that he could be merciful, he could be faithful, and then, are you ready for this? All of the mess that we get ourselves into because of sin, he would pay for. That's what that word propitiation, big theological word in that passage, it literally means satisfaction. God was satisfied in Christ when he died on the cross for our sins. In fact, Isaiah 53 said, he laid on him the iniquity of us all. Who laid on him? God laid on him the iniquity of us all. Hebrews 8, God did not spare his only son, but delivered him up for us all. The need, the humanity, the extent, the purpose, so that he could identify and intercede for us. If you've ever wondered whether Jesus understands, take a look at the diagram that's either in your notes or up on the screen, and we're gonna go around it clockwise. We won't use the supporting verses. They're all over the pages of the four Gospels. But start at the top with me. At his birth, because of his birth, a virgin birth, later in his life, they accused him of being an illegitimate son. He didn't have credibility with many because they didn't understand his birth. He was the object of scorn. We know who our father is, the leadership said, intimating you may not to him. At age 13, his parents found him in the temple conversing with the leaders, and they said, what are you doing? And he says, I have to be about my father's business, speaking of his heavenly father. His parents didn't understand the calling of God upon his life. Coming on around, he evidently lost Joseph his father, some point in his life, after age 13 and before he starts his public ministry at about age 30. So somewhere in there, he understood what it was like to live in a single parent home with just a mom in an absence of a father. You see, he understands. He understands the complexity of those kinds of messy relationships. He lived through them. He was raised in a house where his siblings didn't believe who he was. In fact, as late as John 7 in the Gospel of John, his brothers don't believe as Jesus is going to the feast in Jerusalem. His brothers have no clue and they have no faith. Later on, some will believe after the resurrection, but not yet. And then his enemies, if that wasn't enough, he had some relatives, by the way, uh, back in Nazareth who thought he was local. Out of his mind, literally in the, in the Greek, it means outside of himself. <laughs> He's out of it. And then his enemies... If you study the Gospels, there's about 50 to 60 days of the life of Christ in the Gospels. That's all we have. Very th a thin sample. Take four books to get there. But out of those 50 or 60 days, I wrote a chapter that's in a book called Why, O oh God, on Suffering. 
and my chapter was on the, the, the sufferings of Jesus in the Gospels, 50 times before he ever came to the Passion Week that we celebrated Holy Week, 50 times in his life he faced verbal abuse or a threat on his life. That's an average of once a day. You think about what he went through. He lived under the constant barrage of verbal attack and threat of death. You see, Jesus knew the pain of human relationships and he had and still has a plan to reach in and redeem those relationships. One of the ways he did this was to introduce us to a wonderfully new definition of family. Point number two in your outline, Jesus redefined the significance of family relationships in terms of the eternal rather than the earthly, or we might say the spiritual rather than the natural. On one occasion, as you see in Mark chapter three, verses 32 to 35, a crowd was sitting around him and they said to him, your mom, your, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. To which Jesus answered, now watch what he says, who are my mother and my brothers? And then looking about those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my mother and my sister and my brother, my mother. If you want to have fun with your Roman Catholic friends sometime, ask them, who are the other mothers of Jesus? That'll start a conversation. <laughs> but you see, relationships aren't confined to the earthly. Jesus redefines what it means to be rightly related to him, and it's spiritual. It, it, it's, 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 it's heavenly. It, it has eternal significance. Luke's parallel says, my mother and my brother are those that hear the word of God and do it. He's not saying that you can earn your salvation. He's not talking about a work salvation here. Doing the will of the Father and hearing the word of God and doing it is doing whatever God says is necessary to have a right relationship with him. And that happens to be by listening to the word and responding in faith to trusting in Jesus Christ. John 6, 29 puts it plainly. Jesus said, this is the work of God. In other words, this, this is what God wants that you believe in him, Jesus, whom he, speaking of the Father, has sent. If you wanted to know what's the one work that'll get you to heaven, John 6, 29 says it's believe. Believe in Jesus whom God has sent. Watch the screens and see an amazing summary statement in John chapter one, verses 11 to 13. He, Jesus, came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, he gave them the right to become children of God. There's the new relationship. By reception, by faith, who are born, speaking not of blood or the will of the flesh, we're not talking about physical birth or of human effort or human will, but by the will of God. It's not of the will of man, it's not of the will of the flesh, it's not blood descent. You're not a Christian because your parents were Christians. You're a Christian because you received, believed, <coughs> and were born by God into a new birth, which puts you into a new family. When we believe in Jesus Christ for our salvation, we're born again into a new family. And that's why uh, Pastor Cody or, or, or Lewis could say, my brother or my sister, as they're baptizing people there because it's the de definition of a new relationship based on faith. We have a relationship with brothers and sisters in Christ that you and I get to enjoy now in this life and all eternity. 
It's the third point, however, in our outline that we come to the central passage in the third saying on the cross. And in it, we're going to see how Jesus modeled and mentored this new definition of relationship. You see, Jesus, as you think about the cross, and Pastor Cody did it so well a couple weeks ago, as, as he said, take a moment and think. Uh, don't don't, don't, don't uh, sanitize it too easily in, 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 in the, the Easter message, but, but understand the cross, the viciousness of a crucifixion, a Roman execution that was saved for the worst of society, and Jesus hanging those six hours, three hours in daylight, three hours in darkness on the cross, suffering phenomenally, having to push himself up to get his very breath to be able to even utter a statement. It was the passion of the Christ where I got uh, sensitized to how much he actually must have gone through to some extent. I, I'd grown up as an evangelical child in an evangelical family in an evangelical church and on the hill far away stood an old rugged cross and I understood, and it, it was all just about the cross. But then uh, I was invited with a group of leaders to pre-screen that film before it was finally edited. And it was much longer in those scenes of uh, beatings. In fact, we all audibly almost wanted to say, stop it already, to understand what he went through in the trials and what he went through in the beatings before he ever got to the cross, and not to minimize the cross at all. You think about him hanging on that cross, and he had the wherewithal to minister to his mom in the midst of his deepest personal sufferings. Look at the text with me, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, and the wife of Clopas, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. And when Jesus saw his mother, and the disciples whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his own home. You may recall after the birth of Jesus, when Mary and Joseph dedicated Jesus at the temple, that the prophet Simeon was there and had prophesied about what Jesus was called to do but also what it would mean for Mary. Think about Mary in that scene at the cross, watching her firstborn son suffer after having been beaten beyond recognition, hanging on that cross. Luke 2, 34 and 35 says, And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the, rise, or the falling and the rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. You see, Jesus, as he talks about earlier in his life, he's the dividing sword between people. How you respond to Jesus, you accept or you reject. Jesus said, if you're not with me, you're against me. He is a sword that cuts right across the grain of his countrymen and his family. But the sword would ultimately pierce his side, literally, while a sort of sorrow would pierce through Mary's soul in excruciating ways. Think of Jesus paying attention to his mom. Think of mom paying attention to Jesus. You see, Mary and God the Father shared something in common that day. They both lost a son. 
They both lost a son. Something not right about a parent losing a child. My brother-in-law, Jerry, was a pastor in Carneys Point, New Jersey, and they had buried his sister, and then Jerry died about two years ago. And I'll never forget, I was sitting in the third row of the pew. Jerry's body was on display for the viewing here. And sitting on the front row were his mom and his dad, who had lost previously one of his sisters. And now here was a second child that they lost. My heart broke. So I looked between them sitting there and watching the casket, and them, them coming forward to the body and weeping. It gave me a new appreciation. What would it have been like for Mary to watch Jesus? What presence of mind and purpose of heart for Jesus to see Mary? When he says woman, that may seem a little weird to you. It may seem a little disrespectful, but it's not. Let me illustrate for a moment and then come back. We, we use the word decimate and we mean like we, it was destroyed or eliminated something, but that's not what it means. If you came through the 2008, 2009, a downside of the market, and somebody said, how did you do? And you say, I was decimated. That'd be a really good comment because it means you only lost 10%. We'd have been pretty happy with just 10% loss. That's what decimate means. Does it mean destroy or eliminate? The word moment, ironically, doesn't mean pretty quickly. The moment was a unit of, of, of time in the medieval world. The movement of a shadow on the sundial covered 40 moments in a solar hour, which was the 12th of the period between sunrise and sunset. And although the length of a moment in modern was just seconds, therefore not fixed, on average in the medieval period, a moment corresponded to 90 seconds. It was a unit of measure. So if somebody says, I'll be with you in just a moment, starts the clock. <laughs> Got to wait a full minute and a half for that to happen. See, we, we use words and we may not know what they mean. When you see woman, you might think, that's a little cold. But I want you to notice, back in John chapter 2, the word woman and the word hour come together in that passage, just like the word woman and hour come together in this passage. Back in John chapter 2 is his first miracle up at Cana. His mother was a wedding hostess or a relative helping out with a wedding, and they ran out of wine. And so she comes to him <clears throat> and said, they, they have no wine as if, need a little miracle here, a little messianic help. To which Jesus says to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? Literally in Greek, it's gune, tiamoi kaisoi, what to you and what to me? Now, our modern equivalent could be say what? You know, we, we ran a wine and he says, say what? And what he's really saying is, my hour has in common. In other words, nobody writes on my daytimer. You, you don't make the Messiah fit your calendar. He fits yours. He determines yours. It, it, that can be a, a, a say what in a real mild way. It can also be a say what in a serious way because it's the same word in the plural when the demons are confronted by Christ and they go, what do we have to do with you, son of the most high God? In other words, what is this all about? Jesus is saying, woman, what to you and to me, what to me and to you, my hour has not yet come. The word hour, as you'll see on the chart that we'll put up for you, is a technical term throughout the Gospel of John 
that means the hour of his passion, the hour of his glorification. It starts with his betrayal and it will finish with his ascension. In the first two passages, in seven and eight, it, uh, they couldn't arrest him in, in the temple area because it wasn't his time. God's in charge of Christ's time. Jesus said, nobody takes my life from me. I lay it down in my own accord. Nobody writes in his daytime or not even the enemies. Then when you come to uh, chapter 12, uh, in both of the references in 12, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And he says, Father, save me from this hour. For this purpose, I've come to this hour. It's the hour of his passion. It's the hour of his cross, resurrection, ascension experience. And so when you get to chapter 17, when Jesus spoke these words, he lifted his eyes up to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. And then we come to chapter 19, it's the hour. He's hanging on the cross. And he says, woman, I wonder if there was a verbal echo in her heart. You remember, it wasn't time back then. She submits to that, by the way, if you go back to the, uh, to the John passage, because she gets it, she says, all right, whatever he tells you to do, do it. She just, yes, sir. Now is the hour. He's hanging on the cross, and there's that echo, woman, which is probably a polite way of saying, ma'am, I'm putting you into the care of John. John, I want you to take care of her. Woman, behold your son. Son, behold your mother. Why, why did he say that? Why, why did Jesus say that? Well, he's, remember, he's the oldest son of the seven, at least seven kids. It would have been his responsibility to take care of her. Whether she's singled or widowed, whatever the reason, it would be his responsibility. According to some New Testament scholars, that statement, verbally stated like it is, is a brief statement, but would be considered an entrustment of responsibility or a legal testamentary disposition that would have standing in the courts. Jesus' mother, who was almost certainly widowed, probably in her early 50s with little or no personal income, would be dependent on somebody for her care in her elderly years. So in keeping with that biblical injunction to honor one's parents, Jesus steps up to the plate. In the midst of his own personal suffering, he takes care of personal family responsibilities. But why John? As we mentioned, according to John chapter 7 and verse 5, the brothers are not yet believers. And so that family that Jesus has redefined, he would rather have Mary in the care of a believer who has trusted him and has become a companion of his, a disciple of him who loved him and he loved John. Take care of his mom and make sure her future was secure. You see, Jesus connects that earthly to the eternal. He functions according to a redefined relationship. And as the text concludes, and I love that, from that hour, that big hour in the life of Christ, from that hour on, John takes care of Mary in his house. Christ modeled what it was like to care for another. He considered others while he himself was suffering. To use the Apostle Paul's words, he modeled what it meant to esteem others' interests higher than your own. It's the ultimate role and definition of a servant. You see, Jesus was all about caring for relationships because relationships matter no matter how messy. So let me give you a couple of words to live by this week. As I looked at this passage, 
we can't avoid the fact that God expects us to be obedient to his commands by honoring our earthly relationships. Honoring mom and dad was the first command with a promise, repeated both in the Old and the New Testament. And as Jesus expands on the Exodus 2, 20 passage and the Deuteronomy passage, even when parents are elderly and have need, our adult responsibility has not stopped with our adult parents. It's still our responsibility to honor them. Sometimes in weak, tough, messy moments, as I've said with my own parents and with Barbie's parents, sometimes we had to disobey them to give them more honor to take care of them when they didn't know what they really needed to have happened to them. Some of you have been there. It's messy, but Jesus knew it. A second is that Jesus explains in family terms. He could have chosen athletic terms. He could have chosen war terms. He could have chosen any metaphor but don't you love it that he chose family as the metaphor of what it means to have a spiritual relationship, children of God by faith. I love the first John passage, beloved, now are we the children of God, and such we are. And it does not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he appears, we'll be like him, for we'll see him as he is. Our relationship with Jesus here guarantees our eternal family relationship with him there. We don't exactly know all that that's gonna look like. All kinds of books have been written on heaven. Many of them are good, but all of them fall short because of that passage. It does not yet appear what we shall be. It's gonna be so wonderful. It's gonna be so wonderful and out of this world. We'll be like Christ. He was made like us. We will one day be Christ-like, like him. That's the family. That's the forever family. And third, I don't want you to miss this. You and I best fulfill our family responsibilities by seeking to secure their near and ultimate futures. So I have an applicational question for us. How concerned are you about your family? How concerned are you to see your kids come to faith and walk through the waters of baptism in a pledge of obedience and a lifestyle of faithfulness? That's looking from a parent's perspective or a grandparent's perspective. Do you have the near and the far view in mind in your relationships with your family? How concerned are you for your moms? I had a mom. She was a queen. She liked sitting on her throne. <laughs> she loved to be in control. She loved the Lord. She wanted it to happen. How do you secure their future, their earthly future, and take care of them in honor? And then how do you pray and seek to secure their eternal future? Do you have unbelieving parents that don't yet know Christ? Wouldn't it be the greatest prayer of your life and the privilege of your life if you could lead them to Jesus? I have a faculty member friend who led his dad. See, his dad was led to the Lord on his deathbed moments before he passed into eternity, just like that thief on the cross of last week. God is all about securing relationships. They matter. No matter how messy they've become, the message of the gospel <clears throat> is the good news about how you and I can have a relationship with God through Christ and then what transformation that does in earthly relationships across the board. I close with this verse. Don't miss it. Romans 5.8 says this, but God shows his love for us. And that while we were still sinners, 
messy. He sent Christ. The text says Christ died for us. Not when we got our act together, not when we cleaned it up, not when we had a reformation of responsibility. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You see, that lamb was slain from the foundation of the world in the mind and the heart and the counsel of God. Jesus died in eternity past as far as the decision was made and then sent into this earth to accomplish its event in a point in time in history. Why? Because he wanted you to be a brother or sister of his, a co-heir with Christ for all eternity. The Father wanted you to be one of his children. He wanted you to be part of the family. And he went to the ultimate extent. When Jesus hung on that cross, you were on his mind. Let's pray. Father, humbling to know that you, the God of the universe, wanted a personal relationship with us. That you wanted us to be in your family and you made every provision in Christ for that to happen. Thank you that all that it takes is our trust in what you did in Christ, who paid for our messy, sinful lives so that we could have fellowship in a family that would last forever. There's one listening in this room by internet who hasn't yet placed their faith and trust in you, may they in the quietness of this moment say, yes, Jesus, I trust you for my salvation. I welcome you. I receive you by faith. I want to be one of your children. May your spirit guide to that extent, to that end, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.